Thank you very much, Neville. Really appreciate your help this evening. Uh, let us turn in the Scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1, let's read this short chapter through. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and the Kai. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and the Kai, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come." Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Uh, let us seek the Lord for prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the word of God as we think about it now, as we consider it and examine it. We pray for the help that cometh from thee alone. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. <coughs> And amen. In the verse 8 of First Thessalonians chapter 1, we read, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. And tonight we're going to think about the call of the gospel. As those who live in Europe, and albeit we live on the, the fringes of the European continent, it is ever of great interest in learning how the people of Europe first received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And often we tend to major upon the first European city to receive the gospel, and that, of course, was the city of, of Philippi. And that story is very dramatic, uh, but there is no indication that the work that was done in Philippi was a particularly large work. It was a dramatic work. It was a most remarkable work, and it laid a foundation for a work that would grow and develop over the years, and the church at Philippi would be very special to the Apostle Paul. But the, the whole tone of uh, the, the, the ministry of Paul to Philippi is how the Lord worked in, in ones and twos. And you had Lydia, the seller of purple. You had the, the girl that was filled with that terrible spirit of divination and how she was delivered. And then you have the Philippian jailer. And then after all of that, Paul and Silas had, had to leave. So it was, a, it was a dramatic work. God was working in souls. There was the earthquake in the middle of the night. There, there was a, 
circumstances that led to Paul being thrown into prison. It, it was an amazing thing, and Paul went away, and he left behind this nucleus of people that could grow and develop in the things of God, and the church was established on the continent of Europe. The work, however, that was done amongst the Thessalonians appears to have been a, a much larger work. Uh, that's how it reads to me anyway. There were, there were more souls saved. It had a much larger impact upon the city and upon the community. So whenever Paul left Philippi, he got onto the great Ignatian Road, and this was one of the Roman military roads, and he, he walked the hundred miles. A hundred miles is a long journey to walk, and it just gives you a sense of the, 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 the work and the energy, the commitment that Paul had to the gospel, walking a hundred miles along that great Roman military road, and there would have been what we would call service areas. There were places to rest. There were places to eat. There were milestones along the way telling you how far you had gone and how far you had to go. It was a phenomenal achievement, Roman engineering. And so here we have Paul and, and Timothy and Silas, and they're making their way along the Ignatian Way, and they're coming ever closer to the, the great city of Thessalonica. And the city of Thessalonica still exists to this day. It's one of the largest Greek cities. And whenever Paul was coming to Thessalonica, he was coming to the city which was regarded by the Romans as the capital city of this region, and the region was Macedonia. And whenever Paul was traveling through Macedonia, he was in the very heart and center of, of Greek culture, of Greek learning. It was an area that had left its mark on the world. Uh, the whole the eastern part of the Roman Empire was dominated by the Greek language and by the learning of the Greek people because Alexander the Great had dominated so much of the world. And whenever the Romans conquered, they had to give way to Greek learning and Greek culture. And Greek learning and Greek culture really began in Macedonia, for Alexander was from Macedonia. It was Alexander's father that gave the city of Philippi its name. He was Philip of Macedonia, and it was one of Alexander's officers who married Alexander's sister, and her name was Thessalonica, and so the city was called after Alexander's sister. And so this was a place with, with great history, remarkable history, a place of learning culture, a very prosperous place. It was a place that many people traveled to. It was a seaport. It was connected with various parts of the Roman Empire. And so Paul, he came to this place, but he didn't come here to trade. He didn't come to do business. He didn't come to engage in the learning of the Greek people. He came to preach the gospel, to bring Christ to the multitudes that existed in this city. And so he came. And we are taught from what we have already read in Acts 17 that a great multitude of, of Greeks were converted. And although he went to the synagogues where the Jews were assembled and where there was a ready congregation there to hear because anyone could get up in the synagogue and bring a message, nevertheless, the, the Jews were enraged. But the Greeks they received the word with 
with gladness. And it would seem that there were so many people who were coming to Christ, so many were embracing the Savior, the enemies of the gospel, they were alerted. You see, when God does a work, there will be opposition, and there will be enemies, and there will be those who will resist, because they will resist the irresistible. They will resist what God is doing. The enemies of the gospel are not the slightest bit perturbed when the church is doing nothing, but when the church is going forward and souls are being saved, then the enemy will attack. And this was what happened in Acts 17. And the accusation was made, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Paul's reputation had gone before him. And as a result of the opposition, Paul was forced to leave. Just as he left Philippi, he would leave Thessalonica after only three weeks. After only three weeks. But he left behind an infant church. He left behind a thriving church. He left behind a growing church. And you, you will see from the footnote at the end of the epistle to First Thessalonians that this was written whenever he was in Athens. And Paul would go on to Berea and then he would go on to Athens. And when he was in Athens, he, he wrote this letter. So he wrote this letter a very short time after he left the Thessalonians behind. It was a pastoral letter. He was concerned for these people, newly converted. He was forced to leave them. There was much opposition. But yet what he heard from them was so very good because he said in verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. The word of God was going forward. This is the, the power of grace. This is the power of the gospel. This is the call of the gospel. This is what the gospel does in the lives of men and women. It causes the word to go out. And so let's think about this call of the gospel, what this call of the gospel is. And there's a few words just that stand out here. First of all, the call of the gospel produces a learning. The call of the gospel produces learning. Because these people, they embraced the Word of God when they heard it. They received the Word of God. And what strikes me about these people is this. They had never heard the gospel before. And if you come back to Acts chapter 17, I want to show you what they learned Because whenever Paul came to this synagogue of Thessalonica, he went in, and verse 2 says, he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. So he reasoned with them. He opened the Word of God, and he taught them, and he reasoned, and he pointed out what the Bible says. He pointed out the Scriptures of the Old Testament that revealed the Son of God. I can see him opening Isaiah 53, talking to them about the suffering servant, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. I can see him going to some of the other great passages. The Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I can see him going through these scriptures and reasoning with them. The, the word of God is, is such a reasonable message. And then verse 3 says, he opened and alleged that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. 
You see, apostolic preaching was Christ-centered preaching. It was preaching that opened up the Word of God and then presented Christ from the Word. And there were three facts about Christ that he presented to these people. He presented the suffering of Christ. How that the suffering of Christ is essential for our salvation. Christ too died for our sins, but he also presented the resurrection. Most essential, Christ didn't just die, he didn't just suffer, but he rose again. He defeated death, he triumphed over death. And then he said, this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, this is the Christ. And so you can see him going to the Old Testament, talking about the Christ, talking about what the Christ must do. And then he presents Jesus and saying, here he is. He died. He went to that cross. He suffered. Here is the one whom the prophets have spoken of. He rose again. We have the eyewitnesses. He said, I myself saw him on the Damascus road. I can hear him bringing his own testimony. This is the Christ. He has come. And so he taught them these wonderful facts and these details. And these Thessalonians, they heard this for the very first time. And what is so remarkable is it was the Greeks, the devout Greeks. That probably means it was Greeks that were in some way attracted to the Jewish faith, and they had been coming to the synagogue and pondering what the Jews believed. But they didn't have the background in the Old Testament the Jews would have had. But they were the ones that believed. And the Jews, they believed not. Acts 17, verse 5. So it was the people whom you would not necessarily have expected to have embraced the message. They were the ones that embraced it. And they heard all this for the very first time. And they received the word they learned. What about you? What about you? You have heard. There's no one here can claim ignorance. You have heard. And you've heard it over and over. And you've heard it over a period of years. And you've heard the same message. The message never changes. And yet you haven't come. You haven't embraced the Lord. That's a tragedy. And oh, that you could understand the tragedy of hearing the word, of learning, of knowing, of having this knowledge. And yet you're unchanged by it. And so there was a learning. But there was also a turning. And 1 Thessalonians 1 talks about this turning we are told here they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they turn from their idols. The Jewish people, they didn't have idols, but they had idols. They had idols of their own heart. They would not turn from those idols. Idols of their own pride, idols of their own religion, they would not turn from those idols. They didn't worship idols of wood or stone, but they had idols of their own making. They clung to them. But the Gentiles, they had their idols. Mount Olympus was 50 miles south from Thessalonica. And the Greeks believed that Mount Olympus was the very home of the gods. And they believed that Zeus could make the mount tremble. And all of this was very real to these people. And we might say it was just idle superstitions, and so it was. But to them it was real. Their idols were real. Their gods were real. They lived their lives to please the gods. It was what their great-great-grandfathers and their their great-grandfathers and their, and their grandfathers and their fathers. It was what they believed. It was ingrained into their culture and into their society. You live to please the gods. And if there was a poor harvest, if the rains didn't come, or if there was a drought, or 
whatever was going on and it, it wasn't working well for you, it was because the gods were displeased. And so you lived your life to keep the gods happy. And so you served these idols. But they turned to God, to the living and true God from these idols. It was quite a transformation. These, these words in verse 9, they talk about a complete and entire social change. Is any wonder those that were opposed to the work were saying, these men have turned the world upside down with their preaching of Christ. People are turning from their idols. They're abandoning everything they've ever believed. To follow this man, Jesus, it was such a dramatic thing. We read these words in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 and we fail to understand the revolution that was occurring in Thessalonica at this time. And what these people understood was this, that their gods were dead. And some of them may have been made of silver and some of them may be finely crafted out of stone representations of their gods, but they were dead. And the whole thing was a myth. It was built upon a fallacy, built upon a lie. And so they served the God that was true, the living, the true God. They got a vision of that. Their religion was a dead religion. They turned from it. What are your idols? What is it that's keeping you from Jesus Christ? The idol of money. Some people worshipping the God of money today. Yes, that's all they live for. That's all they think about. Maybe even at this time, thoughts of money is filling your mind. And if that's true, that's your God. Gods of your own pleasure. Thinking about the pleasure of this life. Thinking about what you're going to do this week. Other plans coming to your mind even now. That's your idol. Here you are. On the very edge of eternity. Death may come at any moment. And all you're thinking about are the things of time. What's your idol? Idols of pride. The proud person does not want to be changed by the power of God's grace. The proud person resists the word of God. The proud person resists the God whom you will stand before one day. And no matter how big you are, how big you think you are when you stand before God, you'll be laid low. You need to understand these things now. You need to turn from those idols. You know, there's one thing about this world. It renders you dead and it renders you empty. Someone once said there's a, there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man, every woman. And until Christ comes into that void, there will never be happiness. And everything you ever live for, if the gospel isn't at the heart of that, it's all a lie and it's all a fallacy. Oh, you need to turn from these idols. That you might serve the living, the true God. The only one that counts is God. Nobody else matters. And then there was a, a serving. So, with, with this awareness that they had that this God was living and that their former gods were dead, they did something and it was a wholly logical thing to do. They began serving him. So, there was a learning, there was a turning, there was a serving. They began to follow this God. They set their hearts to serving Him. The person that turns from sin serves the living and true God. I am glad tonight that I am in the service of a God who lives, a God who has given me truth, 
What a blessed thing it is to be in his service. Are you enjoying the service of the Lord? Thrilled by the fact that you can serve the living, the true God. Isn't it a remarkable thing that we have truth? We have truth. This world is filled with lies. But in this book, we have truth. We can serve that truth, live for that truth. There wasn't only a a learning and a turning and a serving. There's also a waiting. Because you you will see in the verse 10 we, we read, And to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven. These people were now waiting for Christ to return. Living for that. Living for that moment when the Lord would appear. That tells me they saw themselves as accountable people. Accountability. Most important thing. In Mark chapter 13, the verse 34, the Lord said, The Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. who left his house, gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh at even, or midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And the Lord has gone to glory, but one day he's coming back. And we're told every eye will see him, and every one of us is going to see him at that day. Some will be alive and will see him. Others will have long since died, but they too will see him because they will be raised again. And together, all of the redeemed of the Lord will see Christ returning. But we are to live our lives not only waiting, but in our waiting. We are to live our lives every day that if the Lord were to return on this day, we would have no regrets. There would be nothing that we would have left unsaid. There would be nothing we would have left undone. We would have a clear conscience. We'd be serving the Lord, waiting for his return. If the Lord were to return now, how would you feel? Would there be things you would want to sort out? And, and if there would be, then you better get them sorted out tonight before this meeting's over in your own heart and then go and get the thing established because we need to be ready and we need to be waiting. We need to see ourselves as the accountable servants, accountable to the master for when he returns. The anthem of the Invictus Games is based upon a poem by William Ernest Henley. It says words that are actually bordering on blasphemy. And they are actually words that are filled with the pride of one's own spirit. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the spirit of this world, isn't it? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that's not true. No man or woman is the master of their fate. No man or woman is the captain of their own souls. Nobody has a right to plot out their own future and to do just what they please with themselves. He is the master of my fate. He is the captain of my soul. We need to wait for him by surrendering ourselves to him. The secret of the Christian success is found in his 
or her surrender. Only those that surrender are strong. As George Matheson, the blind Scottish preacher, wrote, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand and prison thee within thy arms. Strong shall be my hand. A spirit of responsibility, accountability to God, waiting for the Master, praying that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. There's to be a waiting. There's to be a believing. A believing. You notice what what else he says in this verse 10. As we wait for the Son of Man from heaven, as we wait for the Son of God from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Whom he raised from the dead. You know, as we wait for Jesus, as we wait for his return, we constantly believe and cast all of our eternities upon this very fact that Jesus Christ lives. We wait for his son because he was raised from the dead. If he was raised from the dead, then he's coming back. See, see, everything that we are as Christians, it rests upon this fact, the resurrection of our Savior. And as we come as Christians to partake of the Lord's table tonight, that's what we are doing. We're resting upon Christ's resurrection and upon his atonement and upon his death and upon everything that he is. We believe that with all of our hearts. That's where the strength of the Christian life comes from. We walk by faith, not by sight. Then there is a knowing here as well. What did the Thessalonians know? In verse 10, to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That's what they knew. This son of God, he is Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The child of God can face death and eternity knowing that there is no wrath to come. That's a tremendous hope. Because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And there are those who shall experience the wrath of God. And if you come with me over in your scriptures to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul talks about this wrath of God. That is a most solemn thing. And if you're not saved, you need to look at these words. And you need to think about them in regard to yourself. Because if you're not trusting Christ alone, you're not prepared for this wrath to come. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So those that know not and obey not the gospel of Christ, there are some that don't know, they will still face that judgment. But there are others that will not obey, and they will face that judgment. And you fall into the category of those that do not obey. 
if you haven't come to Christ because you know and you haven't obeyed. And those dear souls will receive the flaming fire of God's vengeance, of God's wrath in that day when Christ returns. It's a fearful, fearful thing. Oh, that I could present it to you as it is, that you would fully understand and comprehend this, what it is for a sinner to fall into the hands of the angry God. It's too awful for words. But here are a people who are saved, delivered from the wrath to come. Are you delivered from the wrath to come? Thank God there is assurance. What a blessed thing it is to be sure. Because First Thessalonians 1 verse 5 says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. They were sure of this. They knew it. Delivered from the wrath to come. But then there was witnessing. The call of the gospel came to these people, and they witnessed. Thessalonica, you know, was an ideal place to launch an evangelistic campaign. There was no better place in the whole of Macedonia. And the, the people who were converted, they were not only saved, and, but, but they spread the word out. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. The great Roman highway passed through. People were coming from the east and from the west. People were journeying. People from, from Rome were there. People from what we would call Turkey today, they were there. Uh, lots of people that were traveling. It was a great cross-section of society. People coming to trade. And then the ships were coming in to the port. Uh, it was a melting pot of humanity. And as the people came the Christians of Thessalonica, they got the word out. They sounded out the word of God. And they sounded out the word of God to such a degree, people were talking about their faith everywhere. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. The people weren't just talking about what the Thessalonians taught or what they believed, they were talking about how they lived. In every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Here were people who were real witnesses for Jesus Christ. And they were part of the story of the spread of the Christian church. You see, the story of the spread of the Christian church is not just about what Paul did or what Timothy did or what Silas did. It's about what these unnamed people did. The word of God came to them. It went out with power. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. We have a blessed opportunity here to spread out the word of God in our services, through the live stream, through this radio broadcast next Sunday through the regular radio broadcast and radio star Sunday after Sunday. We need to pray that God will use these opportunities for the salvation of precious souls, but we need also to pray that people would not only hear what we say, but people would see how, they, how we live and would see the power of Christ in our lives. In every place, your faith to God were to spread abroad. That's what the world needs to see today. Genuine Christianity. It's a challenge to us. Let's pray that grace would be seen in our lives. And if you don't know the Lord, as you have heard the call of the gospel, it's called to believe. 
Or will you come and embrace the Savior? And let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we pray for your word. Write it upon every heart. We plead with you. In the name of our Savior, we ask all of this. Amen. Amen. Let us sing this, this closing hymn. There is a story sweet to hear. I love to tell it too. It fills my heart with hope and cheer. Tis old yet ever new. Let's stand together. Father, bless each one that remains for the table of the Lord. Undertake for all who leave. Continue with us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.